The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, or a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God to us. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I uh, told the first service I keep on doing this. I do this on my birthday as well, which is weirder than Father's Day. But I've had, you know, a dozen of my sisters um, in Christ come up to me and say, Happy Father's Day. And I wholeheartedly reply, Happy Father's Day to you. Um, which just doesn't, it's, it's not appropriate response. Um, so if I do that, I, I just like to respond in kind. And I, again, I do that on my birthday too, as well. Happy birthday to you, whatever day your birthday is in the future. Um, and so one of the ways that here at Frontline we like to celebrate Father's Day is if you're a man in this room, as you leave, there are going to be some baskets and uh, just as an expression of love for you, um, you get a Snickers bar and or a, a Slim Jim, I think, or, or some something like a Slim Jim. Maybe it's not actually Slim Jim, but they all taste the same. So um, that's just a way to save it. We love you and we honor you dads, spiritual dads, and all the men of our church. Uh, my name is David Dare. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. And we are um, going to take a break from 1 Corinthians, as you noticed, and, and spend a week in 1 Peter. But as we do, I want to give you a personal update that also pertains to the church as well. Um, in a real gracious way that's a gift uh, to fight for pastoral health and longevity in ministry, Frontline Church and the elders of Frontline Church require pastors to take a pastoral sabbatical every seven years. And so the, the elders believe this is like a really like biblical and healthy practice for our leaders to have times that are um, just set aside for rest and refocus, to refresh, and to experience renewal um, and so pastoral ministry is by far not the hardest vocation or calling. It's in some, so many ways like the best vocation and calling. But it is unique in the sense that um, to be a pastor, you're always a pastor. 24 7, 365. And, and why a sabbatical is, is so beautiful and such a gift is you get to lay down that mantle for a period of time to experience uniquely a refocus, a refreshing a renewal. So as this being uh, this year, 2023, my 14th year as a pastor at Frontline, I am going to be taking my second pastoral sabbatical. And so that starts after today. Next Sunday is going to be my first day on sabbatical. I'll re 
be returning mid-September. And uh, some things that go without mentioning, but I'll still mention, is if you've been a part of Frontline, you've experienced this even just for a few weeks, that we champion team ministry here. And, and certainly here at Frontline Edmond and all Frontline congregations, ministry doesn't rest on the single shoulders of anybody, certainly doesn't rest on the single shoulders of me here at the church. We have eight elders rooted here in Edmond. We have over 30 elders at Frontline Churchwide at our five congregations. We've got 15 deacons here in Edmond, not to mention like the 40 community group leaders like the the heart for ministry and um, teaching and care and preaching and all the things that we fight for and uh, the levels of health that we expect, that's going to continue all through the summer. And and frankly, the last time I took a sabbatical, y'all like bought this building. So probably great things are going to happen while I'm gone. I'm really expected to see what cool stuff you guys do while I'm out. Um, so I would ask you guys to pray for me and my family while we're on sabbatical. Um, I've got a fat stack of books I'm going to read, and uh, we're going to go take a trip to see some family out west, and uh, so I would covet those prayers, and I I was just processing this week even before I go, and I do this with our kids, like anytime I'm going to take a trip before I go, I like pre-miss my family, (laughs) if that makes sense, like they're still around, I haven't left yet, but I'm already kind of sad that I'm going to be separated them from a period of time, it doesn't make any sense, but I do it, and um, I don't know if y'all do that too, it's probably just my weirdness, but I've I've been doing that with you guys already this week, I've like pre-missing you, and so I love you so much, I'm so thankful to be one of your pastors, and uh, I can't wait to be back in September, and uh, I will miss you, and you will miss my dad jokes, but we will be back together again soon. But before um, that happens, we're going to dive into First Peter here. And so I'm going to pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll look at God's Word together. So, Heavenly Father, we pray as we look to your Word, you would help us know your love, that we would, to greater degrees, see the beauty and the wonder of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for us, not just as individuals, but what that means for us as a church. So, Spirit, we thank you that you help us understand the word of God. I pray that you would help me as I hold up this truth and say things that are helpful and true and what would be planted in the hearts of your people um, is from you. So we, we pray for soft hearts and open ears, and we pray that um, I would help serve us all in this moment for your glory. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said. It occurred to me this week that it's really like clockwork. There's this trope that shows up in all kinds of storytelling, whether it be movies or books or shows, and it, it is the, the issue of the protagonist of the story dealing with amnesia. And this is maybe just my lifetime, but whether it be like um, rom-coms from the 80s or sci-fi movies from the 90s or, or spy movies from the early 2000s, shout out Born Identity, or even like uh, the, the, the blockbuster animated films about a fish being lost at sea because she lost her memory. Like there is a reoccurring theme of, of the main character in a story dealing with the issue of memory loss, not having an answer to the question, who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? And it seems like our culture is enamored with this because it shows up again and again in stories. But amnesia in a real way isn't just a thing of fiction, right? That can be a real-life issue. And even though, God willing, none of us will experience that to that degree, although we've, 
We've seen it maybe in, in the lives of ones we love and how tragic that can be to lose memory, to lose identity, that every one of us, in a way, in a subtle level, experiences the subtle struggle. Maybe we, we have some answer to the question, who am I? But there's some uncertainty around that question that comes in the form of an identity crisis. An identity crisis meaning that, that we have confusion relating to our sense of self. We have uncertainty to the answer of the question, who am I? And that, I think, can happen in a really common way, particularly around like transitions in life. When a child is becoming a teenager, can have an identity crisis and struggle to answer the question, who am I? That's uncertain at times. When a, a teenager transitions into being an adult, that can be a common struggle when a, a man enters his 40s, often he's blindsided by the midlife crisis, which is an identity crisis of who am I? Where am I going? What's my purpose? When a, when a mom is grappling with the, the real struggle of postpartum depression or a married couple who's raised kids find themselves for the first time with a quiet house and an empty nest, they can have an identity crisis. Who are we without kids in the house? And the reality is amnesia or identity crisis isn't just a thing of fiction, and it's not even something that's a reality for individuals, but an identity crisis can apply to a church as well. The church can suffer from an identity crisis. A church can forget her identity, its sense of purpose, mission, and calling. A pastor who I, I really love and respect and am and blessed by, his name is H.B. Charles Jr. He pastors in Florida. He, he says this, local churches often face an identity crisis. At any point, a church can be a ministry, mission, movement, museum, or mausoleum. I'm so jealous of that alliteration. I mean, that's amazing. Ministry, mission, movement, museum, or mausoleum. Congregational life, he says, can easily veer off course. When you lose your why, you lose your way, and we must go back to the basics and ask, what is the church? So all that to, to give us some context to, to understand what's going on as the Apostle Peter writes the letter of 1 Peter to the early church. And he's writing to a group of, of churches. You might want to think of it as a network of house churches that were planted around Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And these churches were planted and were growing in the midst of the Roman Empire, obviously 2,000 years ago. And they were following Jesus, but they, uh, they were growing in impact and influence in the cities in which they were planted. And so they were going from really ignored, unnoticed, but as their influence grew, as their impact grew, as this early sect of Jews who believed in this Messiah who was a poor carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus, when they were actually beginning to worship not Caesar as Lord and King, but Jesus as Lord and King, and actually not just other Hebrews, but people from all around the empire with different backgrounds were actually joining them and beginning to worship this man, Jesus, as Lord and King, all of a sudden, the empire took notice. Because there was only one Lord and King to be worshipped in Rome, and that was Caesar. And so there was all of a sudden an issue, particularly with these churches in this area. And as they got on the radar of the Roman Empire, 
The power of the empire sought to, to snuff out, stop out the church. And this grew into a full-fledged persecution under Emperor Nero. And these, questions, these Christians were losing their jobs, their homes, their families, even their lives. And so this is the context that Peter writes his letter to the early church, his first letter, First Peter, to a church in the midst of persecution that is understandably struggling with identity, struggling to remember They're asking questions like, who are we? Why are we here? What are we called to? So Peter writes this passage in particular to answer the all-important question that a church is asking, who are we? And the answer Peter gives may be the most encouraging insight into the identity and the purpose of the church in all of Scripture. And so As this church asks, who are we? And Peter answers, we stand under that question. It's healthy and good to ask. We can suffer from identity crisis as a congregation. We can have forms of amnesia. And it's good to come back and ask that question, who are we? Because scripture gives us a profound and powerful answer. The first thing we need to see as we ask that question, Peter tells us the church is a people built on Jesus. Who are we? We ask as a church. Peter first tells us that as a church, we are the people built on Jesus. Look at verse 4 with me. I'm going to take this line by line. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Let's stop there. See, those first five words, as you come to him, Peter is saying, as, as we draw to Jesus, not just in, in the first moments of faith, not just as we place our faith in Jesus for the first time and experience new birth and renewal and spiritual life as we're forgiven of our sins and placing our faith in, G, faith in Jesus for the first time, but, but continually as we follow him as a church, as we believe on him, as we trust on him, as we put our hope in him day in and day out. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone. That's a striking metaphor because stones, as we know, aren't alive, right? They're strong, they're solid, they're trustworthy. We can, we can lean on them, we can build on them. But Peter, again and again, is going to use stone language all through this passage. He's going to talk about a stone and a, a quarter stone, and he's, he's going to hold that metaphor out again and again to drive home the reality of the strength of Jesus, the trustworthiness of Jesus, the the solid rock that is Jesus Christ that our lives are, are invited to be built upon. The one thing that is unshakable, the one person that is, that is unshakable. But the beauty is he's saying, hey, this isn't just a dead stone that Jesus is a living stone, which is a profound. I mean, we could spend a lot of time and ought to spend a lot of time just meditating on that phrase. It's beautiful and rich. That in Jesus, in all of his strength and all of his weight and gravitas, that, that like a stone, he's significant, a foundation, and yet he's not dead He's totally unique in the sense that he's that strong, but he's alive. And we're invited to to reflect upon the the story and the ministry of Jesus here. Because remember, this is a, a suffering church. And Paul writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. To people who were suffering and experiencing rejection by men themselves, Peter's reminding them, hey, Jesus was rejected too. 
He experienced suffering and persecution too. He suffered just like you're suffering. He knows what it's like to walk in your shoes and experience that hardship. But in the midst of that suffering, being rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Jesus is chosen and precious. That just because you're suffering doesn't mean God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that God's distant. That the church is too chosen and precious. Because Jesus died on that cross rejected by men, but he also rose again after three days, defeating death. And he's a living stone. The church isn't built on a foundation that's a rock that's principles or laws. First and foremost, the church is built on a living stone who is a person with a real body, with a real heartbeat, in a real place at the right hand of God who is building his kingdom and praying for his church right now. He's not just rock solid, but he's fully alive, having wiped away our sin and having defeated death. And so Peter's going to say, when we are in him, we too are living stones, what, what God has done in Christ Jesus through his death and resurrection, that becomes our story too with we're, when we're in Christ. That, that we too are living stones. Sam Storms says this in light of Peter here writing about the immeasurable value and, and worth and honor that the Heavenly Father has for Jesus. As he writes, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Pastor Storm says that God the Father should prize Jesus in this way. should suggest that, that we too treasure the Son of God above all else. And perhaps the most important task of the church, God's temple, is to prize Jesus as precious so that all the world may see him as such. See, in light of this, Peter writes in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. See, because Jesus Christ is the living stone, to be a Christian, to be in Christ, to be a follower of Jesus as we come to him, the living stone, we're not just individual living stones, or we're not just bricks in a pile, but Peter's using this beautiful metaphor to say, hey, We're being built together on the foundation who is Jesus Christ and we rest upon him and we are connected to each other, resting upon one another, connected, interdependent. As we follow Jesus together, we're built into something bigger than ourselves, something filled with power, a spiritual house that in the Old Testament, there was a a temple made of dead stones that, that by God's grace was a place of his presence. And yet his presence was limited there because of our sin, that we had run from God and committed crimes against God and rejected God. And so our sin had separated us from God, separated us from life itself. Yet because of Jesus's work on the cross, the presence of God, God is not limited to the temple, but is, is now dwelling a new temple, which is his people, living stones. And this spiritual house is called to live out the purpose of being a holy priesthood, or verse 9 says a royal priesthood, called to make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. 
Our sacrifices aren't like, again, the Old Testament where the blood of bulls or goats or lambs were spilled. Jesus was, all those sacrifices just pointed to Christ. He was the once and for all final sacrifice, but we're still called to sacrifice as royal and holy priests, as the living temple of God. The author of Hebrews gives us some insight as to what those sacrifices look like when he writes in Hebrews 13. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To sum it up, it seems like the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, the spiritual sacrifices, the the living stones, the temple of God, the holy priesthood, who is the church are called to make are, are first and foremost worship, to love God. Also, to to share with one another fully and richly as the people of God, to to love people. And finally, to, to do good, to push back darkness, to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and to, to demonstrate the kingdom through doing good for the glory of God. It's just our mission as a church, to love God, love people, and push back darkness is the spiritual sacrifice we're called to live out as the church. Peter goes on to write, referencing the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 28. He quotes the Old Testament, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word of God as they were destined to do. See, Peter's reaching back to Isaiah, as Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, is prophesying and capturing the the two ways that everybody ultimately is going to respond to Jesus. He's a stone, but he's either going to be a stone that is a cornerstone that we build our life upon, he's everything, or he's, he's in the way, he's in offense, he's something that we stumble over. For some, Jesus is a stone He's a pain point. He's something to get over or around or away from. And if that is who Jesus is to you, that that stumbling, as Isaiah puts it, is a fall that lasts not just in this life but forever. But the reverse is true. Isaiah says, hey, the other way that you respond to the rock who is Christ Jesus is that if you believe that Jesus is precious, you believe in him, you build your life upon him, that you stand in honor inside of God now and forever. That, that every soul's eternal destiny, every person's eternal destiny depends on a relationship with Jesus Christ. As one author put it, the line that runs between heaven and hell is the cross of Christ. As I was meditating on the scripture this week, it just, it was fitting and it, it, it struck me because you, you guys experience this and it's, it's unique in in, in a certain way to pastoral ministry where you wake up and you, you think you have plans for the day and you often by the end of the day end up in, in a place you had no idea you would be. And that happened to me this past Wednesday. A, a friend who doesn't come to church here, is not a part of this congregation, called me about their friend and um, asked if I would come with him to pray. And I found myself, didn't wake up that morning thinking I would be in this situation, but I found myself um, 
sitting on the head of a bed at an extended stay in Oklahoma City, praying for a young man who's younger than me, who, um, without any hyperbole, is, it was the sickest person I've ever been around. And I've had the grace to be with a lot of sick people over the course of the years in pastoral ministry and, and have the honor of being by bedsides. And I'd, I've never been around someone as sick as this young man. He'd lost over 100 pounds. And in a real way, he, he is on the cusp of um, what certainly is, is dying if God doesn't choose to heal him. And what struck me as I sat on the bed and prayed with this um, young man who is a, a stranger in many ways is the clarity that he had about what was truly important. And the thing that he wanted to, to talk to me about and process with me and my friend as we were there to pray with him is the thing that Peter's holding up here. Is, is Jesus a stumbling block or is he a foundation? The clarity that he had as he's realizing that in an unexpected way that he is, he's going to face death earlier than he ever thought. He's in a place that all of us eventually will be sooner than I think we will think until, unless Jesus comes back. And quite possibly on his deathbed, things were clear in a way that is often unclear for, for all of us, including myself, that in an everyday Edmund life, we're distracted often by good things, family and work and activities and, and sports leagues and, and vacations and, and things that are graces of God. And yet, good things can often be distractions if we don't have answers to the most important thing. What do you do with Jesus? And when you are there at the end, so often that's the only and important thing that you have to deal with. Who is he? Is he a problem? Is he something I've been tripping over? Or is he everything? And I got to share with this young man just the helpful story that Jesus shared with us, the prodigal son, and said, hey, there's, there's a few ways to misunderstand God. This is a story of two boys fitting on Father's Day to remember this awesome story about a dad. In Luke 10, Jesus tells this story that there were two boys that didn't know their father. And one essentially went to his dad and said, hey, I wish you were dead because he said, I want my inheritance now while you're still alive. And took his inheritance from his dad and went to Vegas and spent it all away. But when the drugs were gone and the money was gone, the friends were gone. And he finds himself in a pit, in an alley. And he thinks to himself, well, my dad is rich. I can at least go back and work for him. And so he prepares the speech in his head, right? The I'm sorry, will you hire me just to be your gardener speech? I can live in the, the guest house. And he makes his way home, and before he even makes it to the porch, his dad sees him, and before he can get out the I'm sorry speech, his dad sprints to him, picks him up, puts a ring on his finger, and throws him a party and said, my son was once dead, and now he's alive. And just showers mercy and grace on him. And he didn't understand his father because he thought, well, because I've done wrong, my dad's going to love me less. And yet, an important aspect of the story that we often forget is there was an older brother. And the older brother sees all this play out and he moves away from his dad because he's offended because he's saying, look, he screwed up. 
He's the bad kid, right? He just wasted all that inheritance, and you come back, and he comes back, and you throw him a party. I've never done anything wrong. I always do what you say. And the father, the story ends with the dad pleading to the older brother, like, hey, everything I have is yours. Come, come into the celebration. Everything I have is yours. See, the older brother missed his, his dad because he thought his dad loved him more because he did the right things and he had earned some kind of love. And that's the way we miss God, right? We think that he'll never forgive me. I've done too many things wrong. Or we think, of course he's going to love me. I'm great. I've earned my place at the table. And this is what's true about God. He loves us because he loves us. So when you're considering that question, who is Jesus? Is he a stumbling block or is he a foundation? What you need to know is that he is everything. He is the foundation. He's the only thing to build your life upon for now and all eternity because his love is real for you. He's the only thing worth giving your life for. That's what Peter's holding out to this church. This church is asking, who are we? And Peter is in grace reminding them, hey, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your suffering, hey, you're built on Jesus. He's your foundation. He loves you. He is the rock that is living. And in light of that, it brings us to the second thing we need to see. If he's our cornerstone, the church is a people built together. When the church asks, who are we? Peter gives the answer, the church is a people built together. Verse 9, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. To answer the question, who are we? Peter's giving these like rapid metaphors that are rich. Each one deserves its own sermon in a real way, um, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, we, we are a chosen race, Peter says. Regardless of our race or ethnicity, Christians are made to a new people made out of every ethnicity, a new people made under the rule of Christ. We're a, a royal priesthood, Peter says, that we're spiritual servants who are adopted into the family of God with the King Jesus as our big brother at the royal table with our heavenly father. We're a holy nation that our citizenship isn't in Rome 2,000 years ago, isn't ultimately in the United States for us or the state of Oklahoma, but our primary citizenship is in heaven where our king lives. We're elect exiles here is how Peter starts this letter. If you're a Christian In a real way, you are a refugee until the full coming of the kingdom when Jesus returns or when we go to be with him. You're a holy nation. And finally, he says, we're a people of his own possession. This is really profound. Of course, God owns everything in a real way, but this language that Peter's conveying, it's saying that in in a way that's unique, God treasures the church, that in all the world, God treasures his church above all. That should pause our hearts and our tongues before we speak of God's church, knowing how precious she is to him. Peter ends this passage with the powerful truth. Verse 10, once we were not a people, but now we're God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
This language he's using is referring back to a very specific, amazing story in the Old Testament in a book called Hosea about God's redemptive love. But the bottom line is it's, it's not just an Old Testament story. It's a, a picture of the story of every Christian. Peter says, we once were in darkness. We were blind to God's love and truth and the goodness of Jesus. But, but since we've received mercy, we've been called out of that darkness into marvelous light. Light that gives us life. Light that shows us how to live. Light that illuminates truth for us in Christ Jesus. We were once not a people. It wasn't like we were just a part of another people. We were, we were no people. We had no purpose, no identity, no belonging. But now, because we've received mercy, we are God's people. We once didn't have mercy. We only had condemnation and guilt as a result of our sin. But because of the work of Christ, we've, we're rich in mercy. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is the the heartbeat of our faith. But as we reflect on these verses, where we're going to end is just a reminder that there's an aspect of what Peter's writing here that's easy for us to miss as we read these verses through our lens in English 2,000 years after they were written. Because we need to know that Peter's language here is consistently in the plural. Every time Peter writes you, it's not you as individually you, it's, it's the plural you. Pastor Cale Freeman, who's like got a crazy degree in Greek and Hebrew, I, I just, you know, check my math. I'm like, hey, is every one of these yous in this passage, they're all the, the plural you. He's like, yep, that's right. I was like, okay, good. I was just checking my math, right? Which means that if we were to come up with like a Oklahoma standard version of scripture and we were to read this, it would read differently. It would be like, as y'all come to him, living stone, right? Y'all yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house. Or if you just like, you know, aren't from Oklahoma, you could say, you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. You all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called y'all out of darkness into marvelous light. Every you in here isn't to individual Christians living in Asia Minor under the persecution of Rome. Peter is collectively referring to these churches together, meaning that as we read this, we don't read it, read it as mere individuals to God. Of course, individually, we Receive the love of God. We have mercy, but we aren't saved just from our sin. The good news of the New Testament is that we're saved into the family of God as a part of the people of God. We're members of one another. We're part of a larger whole in Christ. And so Peter is using that language to honor that truth. He's addressing these local congregations as one together in unity. None of these metaphors work in isolation. And this is important to remember because it's really subversive and countercultural in this moment in our history and in the church because we swim in waters that are waters of hyper-individualization. And the truth is that to be a Christian is a call not to individualism, but to gospel community, to be in community, to be in covenantal commitment and love with others, being interdependent. Our life from God is not lived out in a vacuum or a silo. Our following of Jesus has always been a call to live that out as a shared experience with others. And thank God that's the case, right? That is a grace and a gift. Just imagine the scenario that is the total fiction of you somehow or or 
born on a desert island, right? And yet you get hold of a Bible that washes up on the shore and you can understand it and you read it and you come to saving faith. Praise God. But then you live out your Christian life alone for all your days. Would that benefit and bless your spiritual maturity? Well, of course not. Because you just think of the, the multitude of ways that you've been blessed or, or benefited or, or grown from other Christians in your life that are committed to you and that you were committed to. And yet, particularly for the men in this room, we feel this compulsion to live like a action hero super Christianity where we're alone and we think that makes us stronger. We think we're like the Rambo of the church or something, a one-man army. And this is like fiercely unbiblical. The wisdom of Scripture tells us that's not true. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls. He doesn't have another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, he too will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And it's just the richness of the wisdom of Scripture saying, look, it's, it's unwise to be alone. You're not called to live alone for protection, for life, for flourishing. You're called to be in gospel community in Christ. And, and yet our culture pulls us to take this posture where we are on the fringes of the church, and it's easy to fall into a, a ditch or a practice or a, a, a outward judgmentalism towards something that we're called to be in the midst of, but we separate ourselves from it in a posture of consumerism or criticism. C.S. Lewis spoke to this danger when he wrote his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fascinating book, fiction, about a, a uh, experienced demon coaching a pupil and coaching him on a way to uh, thwart the spiritual growth of a, a young Christian man. The senior demon writes this. He says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that, quote, suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a, quote, suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants to make him a pupil. And it's so easy. I feel the pull. Each and every one of us in this city at this time, I think, feels this gravitational pull into being a critic of the church and not a part of the church. And, man, just being a critic totally misses our calling. That doesn't mean that, that we can't say hard things and, and offer criticism or exhortation or rebuke. We, we must do that as a part of the family, but we do it as family in the church not removing ourselves from it. I was reading this week and I came across a review by a rock critic named Steve Pond. And in 1987, for Rolling Stone, Steve Pond wrote this review about U2's The Joshua Tree. The review was overall positive, but this is how he ended the first paragraph. The Joshua Tree is U2's most varied, subtle, and accessible album. Although, it doesn't contain any surefire smash hits. I just want to remind you of the first three tracks 
that are on the album, The Joshua Tree. Track one, Where the Streets Have No Name. Maybe the best song of all time. Track two, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I take personal offense to this review. When I held one of my children in my arms for the first time, I sang them, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It doesn't contain any surefire hits is the worst take of all time, right? With or without you, track three, it gets better and better. Like how does it feel to be so wrong, Mr. Pond, about a a review of an album, right? That's the danger of being a critic, right? Whereas we are in beauty invited to actually be a part of the band. We are, we're getting to, to play and contribute and be a part of creating something beautiful for the glory of God, like the Joshua Tree is something beautiful for the glory of God in my humble but right opinion. Meaning the church isn't just a place where we go for activity or a place that is scheduled time in your week. It is a people to which as a Christian we are called to belong. A people that we are called to belong. A shared life, a shared mission, a shared story that we at one point were all rebels against God. We were busted up and broken because of our sin against God and we were hurting others because of that sin and we had been hurt because of that sin but God being rich in mercy, he made us a people because we received his mercy. And we weren't a people, but, but now we are in Christ. And we were brought together to, to proclaim the beauty and the power and the excellencies of Jesus to the world, not alone, but together. Our life in Christ is only fully realized as a part of the people in Christ. Real relationships with fellow Christians that we rejoice with. Real relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ where we mourn together and weep together. Real relationships where we have to give and receive forgiveness and we pray with one another. We bear one another's burdens. We love one another. And so where the rubber meets the road for us, where we land today is the reality that we can't live this passage out with being a part, without being a part of the local church. That is an impossibility. We cannot, as Christians, fulfill our God-given identity laid out here alone, apart from life with other believers in the church. Like, the overwhelming evidence of the New Testament is that there is no category for a Christian living out faith alone apart from the local church. The, the sentiment of I love Jesus, but uh, not the church, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus, but I don't need other believers with me in that call is completely absent from Scripture. You can read the entirety of the New Testament, and you will not find that anywhere. The church is not additional It's not optional. It's not secondary to the Christian life. It's central. We are built on the foundation of the living stone. Who is Jesus? But we as living stones are built together as a spiritual house. We are saved into Christ, out of darkness, into light, together to proclaim his excellencies. None of our identity can be lived out in isolation. So, If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you have an an invitation to put your faith in Jesus. God loves you. He's pursuing you. He wants you to see that, that Jesus is not a stone of stumbling. He's your cornerstone, the one thing worthy of building your whole life upon.
He's your king and your Lord. But the good news is when you're saved from your sin into life with Christ, you're also added to a family of God who are imperfect and messed up and weak, but also a true family, a true people as we grow together and and love one another. Perhaps you're a guest this morning, and this is one of your first times, if not your first time, to come to Frontline, and you're in that really difficult season of trying to find a local church to be a part of. And we often pray for you, even if we haven't met you yet. That is a a difficult place to be. And our prayer for you is that the the weight of that, the seriousness, the sobriety, would, would be something that helps you discern, led by the Spirit, whether it's here to, to actually put down roots and grow as a part of this gospel community or somewhere else. That's great. But, but we would pray that, that as you search for a church, you would do so in a way that's Spirit-led where you, you know the necessity of that, which means that there might be some of us here who have been just kind of attending Frontline for a long time. And my charge to you is, is to not make church membership optional, but really take hold of being a part of the local church, the people of God, by attending a membership class, which isn't just like a series of classes that, that happens over lunch or whatever. It's actually a really rich and robust and sacred time where we look at our calling together as a people, our, our values together as a people, and it helps discern whether we're to root our lives here as a part of the living stones who are a temple of God, or perhaps that might be somewhere else. We fulfill scripture by remembering that Peter said that, hey, we're, we as pastors are called to give an account of the flock, and membership actually enables the elders of this church to know who we're going to be held to account to care for. And the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13 that we're all supposed to know who our pastors are so they can serve us and lead us. So in a few months here in September, we're going to have a membership class. Man, my charge is that maybe you've been around for months and this is the place you're getting fed and you consider your local church. Well, jump into that membership class. And then finally to the members of Frontline, to understand who you are, to, to, to answer the question, who we are as a church, one of the practices that we go through each summer is membership renewal. And this is far more than just like updating addresses and phone numbers, right? This is actually a time where we remember the covenantal love that we've received in Christ Jesus and that love that we're called to extend to one another as part of the church. A time where we can intentionally slow down and ask questions of church leadership and, and, and renew our commitment to walk out God's mission together, to love God, love people, and push back darkness, to, to get clarity or help, to celebrate things that we need to celebrate. And so my charge to us who are members, the, the 700 people that are covenant members of, of Frontline Edmund, is that we would take this moment over the summer to take membership renewal seriously in a way that it, it stirs our affections for Jesus and, and stirs our hearts for the love and our commitment to the local church that's central to our Christian life. To remember Peter said, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you all together may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Let's stand and pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we pray wherever we are today, that you would give us the grace and the mercy of hearing from the Holy Spirit who's speaking to each and every one of us and, and that we would see truth as it relates to our life in Jesus. For those in the room who may have up to today seen Jesus as a, a rock of offense, that Jesus is in the way to, to the good life, to joy and real fun, something to be stumbled upon, that, that you, Spirit of God, would help each and every one of those in the room today see that Jesus is, is not in the way. He's actually our foundation. He's everything. He's actually, he's not hindering us from the flourishing life. He's actually the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus, you came for us to have life and life abundantly. May you help them, Spirit of God, put their faith in you, build their life on you, rest their hope upon you. And for those who are in Christ, would you grow not just our affections for Jesus, but for one another as a local church, joined together as living stones built on the foundation of the living stone, Christ Jesus. That we would love one another in a way that proclaims your excellencies. That we would serve one another through spiritual sacrifice that proclaims to the city that our God is real and alive and at work in his people. Would you do that among each and every one of us for your glory, Jesus? And God's people said, amen.